Thank you for listening to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon preached by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled, How Do We Get to the Other Side? It's based on verses in Joshua 3 and 4 about the Israelites crossing the Jordan River and going in and taking possession of the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them. It makes some connections to contemporary events in our history and in our world today and invites listeners to pray for and work for peace and justice and righteousness. We hope that you'll enjoy it. So last week we heard the story of the death and burial of Moses. Fortunately, the death of Israel's leader has not left them without a leader. The Lord ordained Joshua, Moses' assistant, to succeed Moses. And in chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, the Lord exhorts Israel's new captain to be courageous and to be obedient, as his predecessor was. Now, while the Israelites are not leaderless, they are still landless. They are still runaway slaves from Egypt without a place of their own to call home. But that situation is about to change. In chapter 2, Joshua sends spies across the Jordan River to the city of Jericho that lies in the land of Canaan. The spies spend the night in the home of a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab gives the spies excellent intelligence. The mood in the city is grim. The people of Jericho have heard how the Lord cut off the Israelites from the Egyptians, how the Lord won a mighty victory over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, and now everyone in the city is is in a panic because the Israelites are not in far off Egypt, but they're here on the other side of the border. And the spies say, thank you very much. And in exchange for her hiding them, they promised to spare Rahab and her family when the Israelites attacked the city. Problem is it's spring, and the grain harvest is in full effect, and also the Jordan River is flowing outside of its bounds. All of the snowmelt from the mountains in Syria is coming downstream. So how did the Israelites get from here to there? Well, for a second time, the Lord is going to make a way where there is no way. The Lord stops the flow of the river and allows the Israelites to enter the land of Canaan on dry ground. And this miracle is a sign to the Israelites that Joshua is God's appointed leader for them, just as Moses was. And it is also a sign to the Israelites that there is a wonder-working God still in their midst who is more than capable of driving out the Canaanites and settling the Israelites in the land that God promised to give them. A promise that was given centuries and, as we've been going through the Old Testament, months before to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now the God we meet here in the book of Joshua is kind of a Robin Hood deity. This God robbed from the rich and gave it to the poor. The Lord is about to give Canaanite homes and fields and vineyards and pastures and mines and precious metals to these runaway slaves. The scripture assures us that this is just. In earlier passages in the Old Testament, we read that God is going to drive out these nations from the land of Canaan because they are exceptionally immoral and because they practice child sacrifice. For Israel... Crossing the Jordan River is a miracle in more ways than just one. God is transforming these people from a band of stateless fugitives into a nation among the nations. 
Now, if you were here last week, you heard me draw a connection between Moses' unmarked grave and the unmarked grave of Elizabeth Haddon, the first European resident in these parts. Uh, the chapel choir who sang this morning has already made a connection for you between the scripture reading and our contemporary American context. As you'll read in the bulletin, the lyrics of Wade and Water reference the biblical story of the Israelites crossing the River Jordan. The lyrics also reminded freedom-seeking African Americans to walk in the rivers along their underground railroad journey so that tracking dogs and slave catchers could not follow their footprints or their scent. Thus, Way in the Water is not just a song, but a beacon of hope and resilience in the face of adversity. Now, again, I'm still fairly new to this community, but as I understand it, the Underground Railroad, or a spur of it, ran through this very community. Uh, Peter Mott, I believe that's his name, was uh, an enslaved person in Delaware who escaped and came to New Jersey and settled in what we call now Lawnside. And he got married and bought a house, and he became the pastor of Mount Vista A.M.E. Church. And Peter and his wife Elizabeth received many runaway slaves in their home, and they transported them by wagon to Haddonfield and to other locations where some of Elizabeth Haddon's Quaker descendants helped these runaway slaves on their next stage of the journey toward the Promised Land. Throughout history, the God of Israel continues to free slaves and leave the meek of the earth to their inheritance. That's the good news. But there is a dark side to this good news. The Lord said to Moses before the beginning of this transition into the Canaan, In the case of any of the cities the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you must not spare any living thing. And that's what happens to the city of Jericho. When God made the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, the Israelites put to the sword every man and woman and child in the city, except for Rahab and her extended family. How in the world are we supposed to think about that? In Richmond, Virginia in 2017, before the city's Confederate statues had come tumbling down, an anti-slavery monument was erected. It consisted of two 12-feet-tall bronze figures. Uh, one is a man, one is a woman holding an infant, and they represent newly emancipated slaves. And the pedestal features words and pictures that honored ten abolitionists and civil rights figures in Virginia, including Nat Turner. Do you know who Nat Turner is? So Nat Turner was an enslaved person who grew up in Southampton County, Virginia in the early 19th century. He was a devout Christian. He was literate, so he read the Bible from cover to cover, and his sermons drew large crowds of enslaved people and also a few whites came to hear him preach. Turner became convinced that God had some great purpose for him and that a terrible day of judgment was drawing near. And in 1831, Turner saw signs. Uh, not signs as uh, miraculous and supernatural as the taming of the Jordan River, but for him, significant signs nonetheless. A solar eclipse, the moon turned grayish green because of a volcanic eruption, and these signs indicated to him that the day of judgment was at night. It was night. So that year he led a slave revolt. Turner and his supporters went house to house, 
killing about 60 whites, men, women, and children, with hatchets and with knives. Now, according to his testimony after the fact, Turner wanted to demolish the myth of a contented slave and wanted to reveal to American society the basic brutality of the slave system. Troops eventually hunted down Turner and his uh, partners, and Turner was tried and executed. And a wave of reprisals convulsed the South. Uh, Free blacks and slaves both died. Often they had nothing to do with the revolt whatsoever. And southern states began to pass laws that restricted the ability of of slaves to learn how to read and write and restricted their ability to worship together unless white minors were present. Now, Lorna Lee, who is an African-American woman, she holds a PhD in American history and is a museum curator, sat on the State Historic Commission that made decisions about the erection of this anti-slavery memorial. And she voted against Turner's inclusion because he and his co-conspirators killed women and children. But another member of the commission, Charles Withers, lauded Turner as the bravest black man in that era. And a majority of the commission members voted to include Turner on the memorial. So two questions for you. Was Nat Turner a God-fearing freedom fighter for enslaved Americans? Or was he a religious fanatic? And could we pose the same question about Joshua in the Bible? This obedient and courageous son of Hebrew slaves who put to the sword the men and women and children of Jericho. Friends, the Bible is a complicated book. It is as complicated as our own history. And as complicated as the monuments we raise, R-A-I-S-E, or raise, R-A-Z-E, to commemorate and tell the story of that history. There is violence in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And assessing that violence is as complicated a process as assessing the violence that's convulsing our world at the present moment. But this prayer for illumination that we prayed said that the Lord caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. So there has to be something that we can learn I think even from disturbing and very challenging passages of Scripture, what is that? Well, the ancient Christians had some, I think, very useful guidelines for how to interpret difficult Scriptures. People like uh, Augustine, the 5th century bishop and theologian, said that when the literal meaning of a Scripture passage commends something clearly immoral or illogical, and killing children is clearly immoral, then that's a sign to dig deeper into the passage, to go beyond the literal meaning of the text, and to seek its inner spiritual meaning. So here's one way I think we can do that. What stands in the way of our entering into the promised land? Is it an addiction? Is it uncontrollable anger or a wondering eye? Is it greed for more stuff? Is it envy for the people who have more stuff than we do? Is it pride that blinds us to our need for God's forgiveness? Or is it a sense of guilt and shame that says we could never be forgiven by a gracious God? I think it's fine to take a take-no-prisoners mentality to 
doing battle with our own inner demons and with our own vices. But take no prisoners is a metaphor, and it's completely inappropriate for our relationships with other people or society's relationships with other societies and other social groups. Now, I said killing kids is obviously immoral. But from Uvalde to the kibbutz Fieri in southern Israel, it's not obvious to everyone these days. On what basis do we make this claim that is sadly and tragically being contested by so many people the world over? On this basis, there is another Joshua in the scriptures who is courageous and obedient, who has left us a sign that God cherishes in some human life. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. The sign that he has left for us is this meal. The bread broken is a sign of his sinless body broken on the cross. And the cup is a sign of his innocent blood shed for the sins of the world. It's a more understated sign than uh, stopping up the waters of the Jordan, but it's an even more remarkable sign, because it is a sign that the God of the universe has come among us as an innocent victim. When we see the photos of the hostages being held in Hamas tunnels, or when we see innocent civilians being pulled from the rubble in Ukraine or in Gaza, we are seeing the face of Christ crucified. But there is more to these signs than God's solidarity with innocent victims. The crucified Christ is alive because he is God with us and it is impossible for God to be contained by the power of death. When the risen Christ rises again and comes again to judge the living and the dead, he will judge the media of this world with righteousness and he will decide with equity for all who suffer. In the meantime, we live on this side of the Jordan River. We await that second Joshua to come and get us and take us to the promised land. And until he comes for us, our calling is to plant seeds of peace and freedom on this side of the Jordan. So do that in some of these following ways. Pray for peace for the people of Ukraine, for Israel, for Gaza, and for the West Bank. Pray for peace in our wounded society and for peace on earth. Pray that God would restrain the work of evildoers. Pray that God would guide and direct those who are entrusted with the task of maintaining social order, our elected officials, our court officials, members of our law enforcement agencies and our military, that they would seek peace and security with means that are just and use the minimum amount of force needed to restore our streets and our world to a state of peace and security. In your own family, or in your own workplace, try as best as you can to nudge the culture away from cutthroat competition and toward collaboration and toward cooperation. Take an interest in children and in teenagers especially those children and teenagers that nobody seems to take a particular interest in. Now, i got to say, this is like low-key work. This is low-profile work. Uh, this is, uh, in the ways of the world, 
uh, thankless work. Uh, no news editor is going to write a headline that says, Prayers Avert Potential War, or After School Tutor Forestalls School Shooting a Decade Later, because we simply don't know about that. That's the dog that didn't bark. But the God who lives in heaven is thee, and the Christ who is among us, as the slain and risen one, will reward you. In the name of the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.